Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. We're going to talk about housing co-ops this morning, 1.2 million housing cooperative uh, units in the U.S., and this morning we have from New York, Mr. Alex Roche and Mr. Andrew Riker. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? Doing well. Good, good, good. good. Both of you work for the Urban Homesteading Assistance Program, uh, known as UHAB, U-H-A-B, uh, and you're doing some research. Um, and I guess this morning we want to talk about understanding the housing co-ops in the U.S. and and what does the future look like for housing co-ops? Uh, Andrew, can you tell us a little bit about how you guys started? You've been with UHAB for 34 years. How did you get started with this? Um, well, I, I first learned about co-ops. You know, they, I guess they were and always have been a very well-kept secret. But um, my first experience with co-ops was when I was in um, high school back in the 60s when I joined uh, REI and actually learned about co-ops for the first time. But I actually um, studied um, and learned about co-ops in graduate school at University of California at Berkeley, where I was in architecture school. And the founder of UHAB, um, Don Turner, uh, became a professor there. And it was through my work with him that I learned about the work in New York and learned about co-ops in California and actually did a little bit of work in the state of California uh, when he became the head of housing for the state um, about co-op. So um, it really was through my work in graduate school and actually spent a couple years in New York as a VISTA volunteer in the middle, and I, I worked on co-ops then. So. Well, you were, it was excellent that you got it in, in school because most people don't. I, mean, I, did not, I did not learn anything about co-ops in my formal education it was only when I started managing housing co-ops that I learned about co-ops and, and have fallen in love and very passionate about them, which is some of the things we'll talk about today. And, Alex, how did you get involved? Uh, I got involved uh, also through school uh, in graduate school, I guess more generally with housing as my thesis research looked at uh, gentrification and tenant organizing. And that's, that's how I found out about UHAB. Uh, although, you know, you have mostly works with co-ops. We also do um, some tenant organizing. And then I was working on, after grad school, uh, I had an internship with a city council member, Helen Rosenthal, uh, researching the various forms of affordable housing in her district, the Upper West Side. Um, and I came into looking at co-ops through looking at the Mitchell-Ama co-ops uh, on the Upper West Side. Um, and then um, through a, uh, a friend, I was I found out about, uh, the job that I have now, uh, you have uh, another research position, which we'll talk more about soon. Okay. Well, 
there's a lot that we can take from what you have just talked about, but let's go to the research first, and then we'll go into what are some of the benefits of housing co-ops. So I guess, Alex, what, what is the research that you're doing? So the project uh, Building Capacity to Serve and Grow Housing Co-ops is looking to compile an up-to-date census of uh, shared equity housing co-ops. What we mean by, what we mean by shared equity is uh, all co-ops that are either limited equity, zero equity, or another variation of the model that emphasizes uh, affordable housing or affordability. So, so far, um, I mean, those are the two. The main uh, research activity is basically doing a, a lot of outreach and some, you know, searching books and articles and the Internet to find out where all the co-ops are and constantly uh, refining all the information I'm gathering. And there's a lot of research challenges about uh, working with data and the different data sets that I've been encountering and uh, what they look like uh, and trying to put everything together in, in one format. And then um, so the second effort is, is the survey aspect, which we just started about a month ago. We have two surveys, one that's looking to survey the co-ops themselves and then another survey of organizations that work with co-ops. You know, basically the survey of co-ops is to to find out how they came to be, how they uh, sustain as affordable, and um, what challenges they are looking at. And, and similar with the organizations, um, how do they work with housing co-ops? What do they do with them? What would they like to do with them? So it's it's uh, gathering a lot of information, uh, which uh, can be fun. It can also be challenging, uh, boring sometimes, <laughs> and, and and tough. Um, but uh, it's all worth it. And and hopefully, I think you know what the idea of research uh, and this research is that hopefully it really lays the groundwork for much more work to come and and to feed into the decades of work that have already been done around housing co-ops across the country to just to add to a general body of knowledge and, and inform uh, growing and serving co-ops for, for years to come. Well, the reason that National Co-op Bank is sponsoring this radio program is because, as Andrew started out, this is the best-kept secret, this co-op. Uh, it's just not known about it. And I, uh, several years ago, when the University of Wisconsin was doing some study research to find out the economic impact of all of the different sectors of cooperative businesses, there wasn't a lot of data for housing co-ops. I'm so glad you guys are doing this. I mean, I, I think the knowledge would be helpful for not only knowing what's going on in the co-op world, but the rest of the world looking and seeing what's the benefits of housing co-ops, which we'll talk a little bit more about. Andrew, why did you guys take this on? Why did you have taken on this research? Well, we're, we um, you know, we provide services. We've worked over the years to to both help create, you know, 1,300, 1,400, 1,500, we're not, don't even have an accurate count, but about 30,000 units cooperative. We also work with the the older wave of limited equity co-ops, the Mitchell-Lamas, and similar buildings in New York. And so there's a lot of co-ops, and one of the things that we do is we we know that, that, that there's, a, you know, a lot of work to do to just get co-ops created, but then there's a lot of work to do to keep them sustained over the years and help them remain affordable and, uh, you know, be able to provide training and education for new leadership and respond to new issues and, you know, emergencies. And, you know, we had a hurricane and a lot of our co-ops um, suffered from flooding and, and so forth. So there's, there's always things to do. And one of the things that we have been seeing more
more and more is people calling us from other places around the country interested in the co-op model um, or co-ops that exist interested in services or or that sort of thing. So we were interested to understand what was going on nationally. You know, we had been lucky to be sustained by essentially government support for the last 40 years, and we have a lot of experience and and knowledge and and you know, and I think there's something to be shared. And we know that we've had colleagues over the years from around the country. And so the foundation, Ford Foundation, sort of challenged us to figure out what's out there um, and how can we sort of start a conversation amongst all the players. There's national players, as, as you know, Vernon, the National Association of Housing Co-op, Co-op Bank, and, and various national groups. And then there's a lot of regional groups and local organizations, all who are working to co-op, but it, it's not always clear everybody's talking to each other. And then there's a whole new wave of interest in cooperative and cooperative-like housing. And so they wanted us to sort of look at it and see if we could start a conversation about how all these efforts might uh, talk to each other and, and maybe work together and identify who has resources, who needs resources, who has skills, who needs skills. Are there things that are missing that, that somebody could, you know, create and uh, take up and so forth? And so that's, that's sort of where we are. We're just sort of in the survey phase, which will give us this information. We've, we've been out and we found the organizations out there. We're finding the co-ops where, you know, there, there was an estimate how many years ago, Alex? 25 yeah, years ago, 20, yeah, yeah, 420,000 units of limited equity co-ops, and we think actually the number will be quite a bit smaller because a lot of those old limited equity co-ops had um, government programs and restrictions that have now expired, and so while many of them are still affordable, many of them are not limited in their prices and their affordability. So, so it'll be interesting to find out what's out there and what the needs are, and then to start that conversation of how those needs can, can be addressed. The other thing I've seen here in the district, as gentrification comes on and housing prices go up, there's a lot of pressure from developers to put on these limited equity co-ops to either sell them, sell their properties, and uh, several cases I've known that they'll take the twenty or thirty, forty thousand dollars per household, and they'll sell it and leave. Particularly when they're thirty, forty years old, and, and those those uh, restrictions are gone. So there's a lot of different pressures uh, that happen. But I want to go all the way back, Andrew. You said that you all have created thirteen hundred to fifteen hundred housing cooperative housing units, and that's affordable housing. How how do you do that? I'm, one of the things I'm hopeful in this conversation is I'll be able to take this conversation. Well, let me see, I, I had a meeting with the executive director of Prince George's County here in the area about housing cooperatives. I went up to Baltimore and had a meeting with some church folks about housing co-ops. And I've met with several people here in the district uh, about housing cooperatives. So I'm hoping the experience that, that, that this conversation I'll be able to give to them to say, here's some of the reasons that I was telling you, and maybe you can say it better than I've been able to tell them, well, why co-ops make such a big difference. But how you said that you've been basically government-funded for 40 years. How have you been able to to create these 1,300, 1,400, 1,500 units? Well, in the beginning, which was actually before I was 
you have our founders were there. As I think people are aware, New York and all the city were undergoing this uh, crisis where uh, landlords were abandoning their properties, leaving the city. Whole parts of the cities were were being empty. There were fires and so forth. In New York City, the city's reaction, and it's, it's a rare city that does this, they would take the properties away from the landlord when they didn't pay their taxes. Andrew, can we stop there because we're going to have to take a break. We'll come back after we get the weather and the news, uh, traffic, and, and we'll talk about what happened 40 years ago when people were abandoning property. That seems so far away from now because right. the prices are going up so high. But we'll come back and start there and see how you were able to create thirteen to 1,500 units. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. News updates on the web at WOLDCnews.com. Information is power. That's WOL's motto. And this is why the National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program to talk to you about cooperatives, giving you the information that if you take this information and put it to use, you will get the power to control your own destiny, control your community, solve community problems. And we have Alex Roche and Andrew Ranker on the phone with us out of New York talking to us as we left before break, talking to us about 40 years ago when people were abandoning their properties in New York and uh, the city taking them over because they didn't pay their taxes, which is so different from today. So, Andrew, can you keep up that conversation to talk about how you guys were able to create in 40 years 1,500 uh, housing units cooperative? If I could just interject about the numbers. Okay. It's, it's, um, it's 1,600 buildings that represent... 1,300 co-ops, and 32,000 units. Thank you. I, I, I ran the numbers the other day, uh, so we do know exactly. Could you say that one more time for me? So it's, it's, um, it's, 13, it's actually 1,351 uh, co-ops uh, and 32, representing 32,875 units. Um, so that's, yeah, it's, it's 1,300, roughly 1,300 co-ops. Got you. Thank you, sir. Over, over 30,000 units, yeah. Okay, that's bigger. <laughs> okay, Andrew. Yeah. So, so, um, but one of the things, and I think that in your introduction, you really hit on it. What happens when um, when landlords walk away from neighborhoods, when cities, you know, withdraw services from neighborhoods? Is that folks step up? They, you know, put a new lock on the front door of their building. They go to the utility and make a deal to keep the lights on, and they start running their building. And, you know, they fix them up. They do what they can do. And um, the founders of UHAB were very involved in the idea of self-help. Uh, it, it was created with the notion that people could be involved and, and could actually do the work to create their own uh, building. So in the early days, groups of people um, were were assisted to take over their, their building and because the city had no other notion as to what to do with all these properties, there was, you know, certainly tacit support. And, and one of the things we tried to do was use the government loan programs that were available for other developers and other, you know, community groups that were doing housing for rental to do these homesteading projects, to do these self-help housing projects. And it was certainly a very popular program and had a lot of press. Um, and the numbers started to grow, but they were small. Um, in the late 70s, 
the city was still facing this abandonment crisis, and it was trying to get landlords to stop walking away from their buildings. And rather than waiting 10 years and then five years and then three years, um, in 1978, they said, if you don't pay your taxes for one year, we're taking your building. And they actually took 11,000 buildings in that, yeah. that year. Um, a building in New York is on average 20, 25 units. So it, it was literally a whole city's worth of buildings. And because they were taking them so quickly, rather than them being run down and, and you know, having caught fire and all the other things that happened and being empty, 4,000 of these buildings were still occupied. And so all of a sudden the city also became the manager of a large number of occupied but in terrible condition properties. And so the, you know, uh, elected officials, you have residents in some of these buildings, community groups. Everybody got together, created a task force, and proposed to the city the opportunity for um, community groups to take over the building, pick them up, turn them into co-ops, administrators to do it. And and the one that we championed was uh, tenants taking over their building, um, getting trained, getting assistance, fixing up the building, and becoming a co-op. And the city, with no other option, said yes to all of it and created an entire series of programs that resulted um, in addition to sort of those wet equity homesteading properties, you know, a vacant building, these taking over occupied buildings, fixing them up, turning them into co-ops was created the bulk of those um, 1,300 cooperatives that that Alex was, was talking about. And to this day, we continue to provide assistance to all those buildings to work with the re- few remaining buildings that the city has. Um, that are working their way through these programs while they're waiting for the city's funding to be available to do their rehab um, and creating new co-ops this way. And there continue to be buildings in New York that landlords don't pay their taxes on. The city is taking control of them, and those we also sometimes develop into new co-ops or other people develop them, and we provide training and assistance um, on those buildings. So, and it's really been, I think, as you said in your, as I said in the intro, it's people saying we can do this. You know, if we take a stand and we sign up for this program, if I organize my neighbors, we do a petition. We can get into this program. We can own this building. We certainly can do better than than the landlord who hasn't provided us any heat, hot water, you know, all winter. So, uh, Mm. so that got you know why co-op though why why not a restricted deed condo or something else why why a co-op um a couple couple reasons one is that that new york despite its you know the the values of its real estate and everything is is a city that is is actually has a very low-income population um and a co-op in a co-op, um, it's sort of everybody can work together. And so it's possible to finance a co-op with a joint mortgage where there's a mortgage on the whole building um, rather than, and the we have a of the building, rather than putting it on the individual um, in, in uh, as you would in a condo. But I think even more important in that is that when you live in a city, and I'm sure it's true in the suburbs and elsewhere, but, but certainly we're aware of it here in the city. 
the issues that you face are, are common issues. They're in your building. They're out in the street in front of your building. They're in your neighborhood. And you need to work together to address those problems, to solve those problems, to improve your housing in your neighborhood. Um, you can't go into your apartment and close your door and, and expect things to change. You've got to work together as a group. And a co-op is really is really an embodiment of that that view, that philosophy. Um, and so it, it is a way to, uh, you know, it's a model of how, how we can live in our cities, how we can improve our cities, how we can support each other. And, uh, and it just works. It, um, so that's, that's what we've always done. We really um, do like the co-op model. We do training for some condos um, and, you know, some condos work that way, but it, it, it's a little more difficult to get people to recognize what they have in common as opposed to what they have individually. Common, 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 common community. Uh, I want to um, give a speech in New Jersey, a co-op that was celebrating 50 years, and they had paid off their mortgage about five, ten years ago. So uh, their motto was, our home we own our home we own. And I asked them to add something to it. And I said, what I added was our, our home we own and control. Um, because that gets to, they own it, they control it. They make sure there's water and heat and the garbage is picked up. And if there's crime, they address it. And by working together, learning how to work commonly to solve these community problems, they also learn how to work with the police department and not see them as an adversary and that's what's happening in our news media today right now. But they, they learn how to work with Congress people and city council people, um, aging. They just All of these different people they can work with so they can work together to solve their, their problems. And I like the idea of, that you just can't go in and, and shut the door and think that things are going to get better in the hallway or out in the streets. Okay, so that's why, why co-ops, and so I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Now, can we... Let's go back to the research a minute, um, Alex, on the research. Yeah. You said that you have been getting data to find out how many how many people are out there, how many co-ops are out there. But what are these two? You have two surveys going, you said. Where, where are you with the surveys, and what do you expect to get out of them? Um, so, so far we have about two dozen responses um, between the two different surveys. Uh, it would be great to get closer to 100 responses or so, which would be representative of, well, if there's about, we're estimating there's about maybe 4,000 co-ops, uh, so whatever percent that is, it's, you know, in terms of statistics and surveying, that's actually 100 responses wouldn't be that bad of a response rate. Um, and But, uh, you know, even uh, from the – there are some – we could talk about some preliminary results uh, so far. Before, I mean, you, before you go to the results, is there is there anything that we can do or anything to get – to try to get more people to respond? Did you send out 4,000 surveys to co-ops? Well, so not yet. Uh, we, okay. haven't, we haven't done a mailing yet. So far, the, the two surveys just exist on online um, and through the – I've been doing outreach and, and sort of uh, – getting like the low-lying fruit so far, but yeah, we're, I'm preparing to do a much bigger outreach, um, and it's going to have to be through the mail. Um, so and, what yeah. is the web page that you send it, uh, that people can go to to get the So surveys? the project landing page is 
uhab.org slash coop research, one word. Um, so that's our, and it can be found through the main page of, of UHAB's website as well under the uh, collaborate with us. So section. uhab.org slash co-op research, C-O-O-P-R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H. That's correct. Okay, and so somebody can go online. And, and so the first one is the cooperators, I mean the co-ops that are out there, the housing co-ops. Right. And the other one is for people that provide services. So when we, we've got to take another break now, but when we come back, I want you to define those two groups. So I want to see if I can sort of help stir the bushes a little bit and shake some trees so maybe you can get them in too. Right. Okay, but we will be right back. And if anybody want to call in, you can call in at 1-800-450-7876 if you have a question or a comment for me or my guests. We'll be right back. Updates on the web at WOLDCnews.com. Welcome back. This is Vernon Oaks on Everything Cooperative, talking to you about the benefits of cooperatives, and the National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program. NCB's mission is to help cooperatives grow by supporting and being an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, placing special emphasis on serving the needs of communities that are economically challenged. And we have this morning... Uh, with us, Andrew Riker and Alex Roche, they, they are taught from New York, and we, we're talking about economically challenged communities, particularly when landlords leave the properties or don't pay the, the property taxes and the city takes them over, and that could be in New York or the Washington, D.C. area, or it could be in rural America. It's any economically challenged uh, community is what, e what the National Co-op Bank is, is challenged to do by Congress. They enacted that to do that. So right now we're talking about research, and Alex is sending out, or you can go online to get a survey, and he's looking at two groups, that's co-ops, housing co-ops, about 1.2 million cooperative units in the U.S., and also people that provide services. You can go to uhab.org, uhab.org backslash co-op research. So, Alex, you were telling us where you are and sending out and getting responses for this? Exactly. Um, so, in addition to uh, the project-specific outreach that I've done, uh, you know, I've personally spoke with, with over 100 people that, uh, and that's a mix of practitioners and folks that actually live in co-ops and, and sometimes both, Um in addition to that, we've been in, in touch with uh, the Midwest Association and a little bit with the National Association, and, and we're really working on, um, I think, you know, the regional associations and the national associations uh, will be a great help in um, informing people about the research and hopefully uh, facilitating uh, some survey, increased survey results. Um, so we, we haven't done a mailing yet, but... Um, you know, potentially using uh, member lists or um, some way, you know, working with those associations uh, I think will be great. Uh, the Midwest Association, um, and Richard Berenson has been wonderful in um, helping uh, to distribute via their newsletter um, to inform his members or their members uh, about the project, uh, a little blurb uh, for us. Um, so it's, it's ongoing, and um, basically, yeah, we need to – vamp up 
our, our mailing list and work on uh, getting all the envelopes together and actually doing a, a mailing because a lot of the co-ops out there um, will, I think, definitely respond better to something in the mail. Not everybody's as, uh, you know, plugged into the, the Internet. And we know a lot of our co-ops in New York aren't necessarily so. Listen, um, we're going to come back and talk about this, but we have Renee on the line with a question. Renee, what's your question? Oh, my question is, I would like for your caller, and good morning, and thank you for taking my call. Good morning. To explain morning. The, the advantages or advantages of a cooperative uh, over a homeowners association. From what I'm hearing, cooperatives offer a better bang quote for your buck than just being a homeowner living in a subdivision. So perhaps your guest can explain to me what the advantages would be for homeowners to have a cooperative with their homeownership versus just being separate homeowners in a subdivision. Thank Excellent you. question. Thank you, Renee. And I'll take my answer offline. Thank, Thank you. you. Which one of you would like to answer that? This is Andy. I'll, I'll, I'll give it a try. Um, you know, co-ops, co-ops have, have some advantages. Um, one is that clearly that gets talked about is economies of scale, um, you know, aggregating, putting together all those, those homeowners um, into one purchase with utilities, with, um, with one loan, with, um, you know, insurance and those sorts of things. Um, those things can be bought. Um, a lot better. They're also, um, in, in a way, are more robust. You know, I mean, they can support, provide mutual support. When uh, uh, a co-op owner um, gets sick or, or loses a job, the co-op can, can you know, work with them to sustain um, and, and keep them, um, even if they're unable to meet their payments for a couple months, and then they can get you back up. So they can provide mutual support and and things like that. And then I think that a lot of people appreciate uh, co-ops because they can work with each other to make sure that the way people live in their in their homes um, don't conflict with each other, and they have rules and can enforce rules about uh, um, how people live so that, that you don't end up with problems between neighbors or you're able to resolve those problems, I think, more easily. Uh, and and you know it, it it varies from place to place whether the financing for co-ops, both for the individual purchases and for the underlying financing for the co-op as a whole, is easier or harder um, than than it might be. Some of it has to do with the laws and rules and the banks and, and government programs in each state and locality. So so that that could be different. Um, you know, but co-ops are generally multifamily buildings or sort of townhouse um, kinds of associations or, you know, or things like that. Uh, there aren't a lot of co-ops. There are some, but there aren't a lot that are, um, you know, larger subdivision kinds of uh, um, activities, although there, historically there are, there are a number of co-ops that are like that as well, that have worked well for, for half a century and, Okay, so so um, it's a it's a model, and it's a model that's been around for 150 yeah. years or more. So uh, I think it's tried and true. This Alex, I, I think that, uh, and that's the advantage of of the co-op model is 
um, its flexibility. Uh, you know, there's nothing. A co-op could be, uh, you know, a scattered site. It could be multi-building scattered site that are that are multifamily, or it could be scattered site single-family homes. Um, and uh, you know, that makes me think of also the way that uh, I've found that the co-op model is has been paired in some cases with community land trusts. Um, and there's some really great examples of all of the land on which a co-op sits is held in a trust, and uh, the buildings might not all be in the same, you know, might be scattered around a neighborhood and all part of um, same co-op and uh, the same land ownership underneath. So um, the, the, I think that's, yeah, the flexibility of the co-op model is great. Um, and I, another thing I was going to say was that I think a lot of people underestimate um, the cooperative nature of uh, non-cooperatives, like living in a condo, you have to deal with all the people anyways. So I think what the co-op model does is it it uh, makes more intentional uh, and sort of formalizes the way in which we all have to live together anyways in, in a city or in a in the world. So, um, yeah, it sort of it lays out everything a bit more clearly so we know what to do when issues arise, and as Andy said, you know, so that there are rules and ways to resolve um, problems, and, and hopefully all for, for the better of all the, uh, the cooperators. So. You know, Renee asked an interesting question. I'd like to add a couple things, <clears throat> and I'll go over this real quickly, but there are seven principles that uh, are underlining of the modern cooperative, volunteer and open membership, democratic member control, members' economic participation, both have to put some money in, and if there's money left over in terms of surplus, then they can get money back out in terms of a dividend. Then there's autonomy and independence, education, training, and information, which is my favorite, that training has to happen, and cooperation among cooperatives and concern for the community. Those are the seven principles. But then there was a research, Renee, that, that was done that the National Co-op Bank sponsored that looked at HUD-sponsored cooperatives and HUD-sponsored apartment buildings. And some of the things that Andrew and, and Alex just talked about was they found, but there were a couple other things um, that co-ops, particular um, affordable housing co-ops, limited equity co-ops, they could still build wealth. Um, and because that they got um, to write off their, their taxes and interest, they got write-offs over and above the wealth that they, they could create. The rents were lower than a, an apartment building, and a co-op were lower because what Alex and Andrew have already talked about, people take better care of them. They they take care care of their pro, uh, properties. During the downturns, there were lower foreclosures. It was lower foreclosures overall in a percentage basis, much lower in co-ops. And I think, Andrew, that's because when people are making decisions together, they make better informed decisions than individual homeowners may make, like saving money for reserves or not going out and getting a huge mortgage that you can't pay back. Um, but there was also social wealth, and that we've already talked about, and which created things like less crime. So there's a whole bunch of benefits, which caused me to ask the question, and I'll ask you, uh, Andrew and Alex, why aren't there more? If these all of these benefits are there, why aren't there just more co-ops than what we've seen over the last 150 years? It's a good question. <laughs> we, we, we certainly have tried. Uh, you know, I think that the thing about um, that, that we certainly know in our work is that creating co-ops um, is, is a people process. I mean, there's a lot of development and real estate development, and that 
that, you know, has its own challenges, its own rewards. But it's really a people uh, development kind of process. It's building an institution, building a, a group, it's building a group spirit and culture and and uh, so forth, where people can work together and live together and really have this, this vision together. And that's, that's, that's you know, slow work. It's, uh, it's less efficient than just hiring a for-profit developer, giving them a subsidy and say, build a big apartment building for us and, you know, and get these numbers, this rent, this income level. And, and then you're done, and then you can hold the developer accountable, and it's all on a spreadsheet. When you work with people, it's not on a spreadsheet. But, you know, I, you talk about the social benefits. There, over the years, there's been a fair amount of sort of academic research about the co-op here in New York. And, you know, in addition to less crime, um, fewer drugs, there's um, a much higher resident satisfaction with their housing, even when their housing isn't as in good condition as, as the nearby rental housing might be. People like to be able to be in control, make decisions about their housing. Um, and then on the outside, there's much more civic participation. You will find that the members of our co-ops are on the local school board, they're on the precinct council, they're on the community board, they're on the housing committee on their in their church um, or synagogue. Um, they're they, you know they get more involved and. And it is known in New York, at least, and I'm sure it's true elsewhere, uh, people who live in co-op vote more than, than other uh, people tend to do. And certainly the politicians in New York know because that's the first place when they're having volunteers calling um, for voters. You get the, uh, get the co-op that you call the co-op because those are the people who vote. And uh, so for all those reasons, you know, you get a lot more for that effort that you have to put in than just, you know, housing that has a certain rent level and has a certain income level. What you get in a co-op is, is a strong community and, and, some, and you know, allowing people to, to emerge as important parts of their neighborhood and, and you know, active citizens. I've heard that. I've heard it on this program. We've, we've been on this program for a year, nine months now, and I've heard that sentiment whether it's somebody talking about Senegal or or Peru, no matter wh where it's talked about or here in the U.S., it's always been that people in the co-ops are much more civic-minded. They get on the school boards, they run for city council, and they get out and vote, which is another reason for more co-ops. But Leela Mack, uh, she's on the city council in Greenbelt, and Greenbelt has seven co-ops in this little bitty city right outside of D.C., and she said it's hard work. And I didn't believe I, – I had some much more different reasons I thought it was the answer. But hard work was what she said, and that's what you're saying too. And the hard work is on the people's side, getting people to change their attitude. And I have found that, Andy, when property management, once you get a person to change their attitude from a tenant mentality to an owner, you get a much better person in that co-op and much more active. Have to take our last uh, break. We only have one more segment left, and we'll be right back. We'll just take a break and – come back with more about what's going on in New York and research about housing co-ops around the U.S. News updates on the web at WOLDCnews.com. Information is power, and again, that's why NCB is sponsoring this program, to give you the power, the information that you need 
to start a co-op, uh, whether that's a worker cooperative, that's the people that own the business, if they're the employees, it's a worker cooperative, or if it's a consumer cooperative, like a housing co-op or a credit union. Uh, a grocery store, a food store could be either worker co-ops where the employees in a, in a food uh, a store owns the business, or it could be a consumer co-op where the people that go in and buy the products in the in the uh, food co-op. Uh, so it could be co-op can be any business that you can think of, any kind of business. It depends on who owns it and who controls it. And today we're talking about housing co-ops around the U.S. And Alex, I'm going to go back to the second group. You got the housing co-ops that you're sending out surveys. The second group are the people that provide services. And who are those kind of people that you're talking that you're sending surveys out to? Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of other nonprofits. Um, we're looking to get responses from uh, management companies that work with co-ops, um, lenders, um, and uh, any yeah. yeah, any most mostly nonprofits. Any others that I'm missing, Andy? Uh, accountants, I think. Uh, Okay, so anybody that's in the co-op world that has a relationship to housing co-ops at least, whether they're developers or management companies or banks, uh, that's the people you want to get responses back. Right, and uh, a lot of nonprofits that provide organizational or technical assistance for uh, for residents, that's a big one. I think almost, I think 80% right, I, of people have responded to do that. Right, and I think the the, the goal of, of both sides of the research, I think, as we said, is, is we want to find out from the co-op what services they're getting, how they're getting the help they need to sustain themselves, and are there gaps in that service. And so from that, we can learn who's doing what, but also what are the other needs. And from the, from the provider's side, we can find out what, they're able to provide, you know, and we can also maybe identify some co-ops that we don't currently have in our inventory, um, and they can help us do that. But then also, what services do they provide that there may be a co-op in their area that needs it? And so we can figure out ways in which those connections can be, be made. But also, what do they see in the world of co-ops that are preventing them from creating more, which is the question you asked before. You know, is there missing financing? Is there uh, legal models that are missing? Are there, um, you know, just uh, best practices that need to be better known? Um, and or are there other kinds of things that um, might need to be developed to be able to support them in creating more co-ops or supporting co-ops better? And and once we figure this out, to have the conversation to try to, to put that all together into into something where we can, where we can see more co-ops and support the ones we have. But that's why I'm so excited about what you're doing because when I go talk to the Baltimore's uh, council people or churches, or I talk to the Prince George's, I talk to the executive director of Prince George. It is like what you talked about a series of programs that that uh, New York City had that would help create these co-ops. Well, when you start new, these series of programs aren't there, and it would be nice to have a little pamphlet or something that say, here's the kind of legislation that you need, the kind of money that you need, the kind of support that the new co-ops would need, uh, because the, the training doesn't start and last for three months. It's uh, every year, and every time there's a change in the board, you need you need this training going. So I would love to see that that research, um, the results of the research, to help me to understand as I talk to people how to get more co-ops. 
Yeah, I think the government is is very uh, key there to have. That that would be a great thing to come out of the research is um, sort of a guide of if you're approaching a, a local you know municipality and trying to explain this foreign concept to them, uh, the best way to do that and and what could the first steps be to start a uh, you know a co-op conversion program or development program in, in your local uh, town or city. What, being a property manager, which I mentioned earlier, this is how I got introduced to co-ops. I've, I have found that uh, in order to have a successful co-op, you have to have good governance first, that's the board of directors normally, and good management in that order. So, and both of them have to have knowledge and integrity. And the most important for those two I've found is integrity, and that is knowing the 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 uh, bylaws and the rules of the land, the laws of the land, and then sticking to those. And if you find that you can't stick to bylaws, then get the get the, the community to change them. House rules, bylaws, whatever it might be. So, Andy, what have you found that would make a – do you agree with this? And what do you find that would make uh, co-ops, housing co-ops successful? Oh, by the way, it's very hard for small co-ops, four units, 10 units, 20 units, to afford to hire a management company. But they still need good management, whether they do it themselves or whatever. We're on radio, so you can't see me smiling, but but your statement is really is really key. Um, and I hear it in your really, voice. I hear it in your voice. Go ahead. Right. <laughs> but and, and the division between you know governance and management is is really important. Buildings, eighty percent of our buildings, because they're smaller, they're in twenty units, twenty five units or less. Um, uh, Self manage. It, it is a constant thing that we work on is the buildings have to understand that your board of directors is governing it. They're the ones who are in charge, and the manager is carrying out the policies that the board and the co-op members have set for themselves. And uh, and it, it requires, especially when you have an outside manager like yourself, an outside manager to recognize that the building's going to work best when that's what's going on, and therefore I'm sure you encourage your board to, to play their role, to do their governance. Tell me what your policy on this. Let's work together and develop a policy on that um, so that that what the manager is doing is reflecting the, the position and the needs and the desires of the residents and, you know, the members of the co-op. And I think that that is, is key. And um, getting managers, whether they're the, the folks in the building who are self-managing, or, or the outside managers to recognize that the co-op sets the policies and the manager sort of carries them out um, is always a, a, a difficult one. And, it, and it's not just internal. It's also important externally to make sure that the lenders and the government agencies understand that this isn't a regular corporation where you call the president and they'll make a decision and they'll do something. This is a co-op where... If you call the president, the president's going to go to the board, and the board's going to discuss it, and maybe they'll put in the newsletter, and there'll be more discussion, and mm-hmm. then they'll have a decision, and then they can get back with the decision. And it is, you know, frustrating sometimes for outside people to not be able to just call one person and get a decision. Um, and it, it's, but it's what makes co-ops, you know, work so well is that these decisions are made. Um, are made democratically. Uh, and when you have a democratic bottom-up decision, 
it's so much easier to implement. It's, it's, I learned that in business school, but more often than not, people will not take the time because it does take time to get everybody to weigh in uh, to the decision and get a vote and then carry that vote on. So, again, that's why I like co-ops. Once, once a decision is made, then the implementation works so so much better. But what are other anything else that makes co-ops function better? I mean, then I guess is what are the ideas of how to get more co-ops formed and stay in existence? Anything you've learned so far from the, from your survey? What what I was going to say is is that um, having having good documents, having good rules and and documents that provide sort of a good set of instructions for buildings about how they're going to function in the future, I I think is important. Especially if you have changes in leadership and and you know and you have varying ideas, it's it's nice for people to have some place where they can go back to and say, oh, well, this is what um, this is set up to do. And I think a lot of our our co-ops run into problems when there's an absence of of, of these kinds of rules. And you had talked about the high pressure from you know now the escalating real estate market is even you know higher here in New York and. In the absence of rules, we're, we're seeing co-ops struggling. You know, should we be selling in high prices? Should we be selling our building? Should we be, you know, doing this and that? Or didn't we get into this to preserve this housing for ourselves and our children and the next generation of people who need them? And you see this conflict playing out in the co-ops as they struggle with the, the enormous pressures of gentrification speculation that are going on in our New York City neighborhood. And so having clear rules and expectations and guidelines and training and stuff is really uh, an important, uh, important to sustain these co-ops. We only have another minute left, so do you have any words of wisdom for me or city councils or people out there? Well, I guess it's the last couple of minutes. Thanks uh, very much for having us. Uh, the plug that I'll give is that just to reiterate, um, you know, this research, I really hope hopefully this research is laying the groundwork for much more work to come and, and to feed into what's uh, come before. And so I, I hope that people like the, the regional national associations and groups that are out there see that this this research is, is for everyone and um, will hopefully inform uh, and guide us uh into the future. So the more we know, the better. I also would recommend that people go look on that, that uh, co-op research page because there's also an interactive map that you can go find and, and see where the co-ops are. And I think even in some of the cities where council members or groups might think there are no co-ops, they'd be surprised to see co-ops in their city and co-ops uh, in their region and, and um, they're everywhere, and also people might know about co-ops and can let us know if they're not on there. Um, okay. But I think there, there's lots of, of good information, and, and thank you. Need to reach out. Thank you guys very much for being on. Have a great day. Thank you so much. All right. Bye thank now. you. Bye bye. Fourteen fifty W O L.